This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, good morning, Anchor Church. How are we doing? Good. Great. Well, welcome. Great to see you here, especially if you are in the room. It's great to have you. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us. Um, We are going to dive into Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Love you to keep your Bibles open there if you have them. If not, the verses will be on the screen behind me. As Moira has mentioned, today is Anzac Day, and uh, we remember the sacrifices of many who have kept our country safe. And uh, really, at the heart of um, of Anzac Day is people laying their lives down for others, as Moira has mentioned, and uh, sacrifice is such a central part of it. And so we remember that today, and uh, we're going to be looking at some of what that looks like in today's passage. So why don't you join me as I pray for us and we dive straight into Ephesians chapter 2. Father God, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you have not remained silent. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed the full extent of our nature and your love and your mercy and your grace is good. God, we pray this morning that you would stir our our hearts and our souls to a deeper affection of you and what you have done. Help us to see this world. Help us to see ourselves with a realistic biblical view. And God, we pray that you would strengthen us to be your people Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak now. We ask it in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, in the last 12 months, there have been two significant books released on the topic of humanity, of humankind. The first is a book called Sapiens, written by Yuval Harari. Has anyone read Sapiens over the last couple of months? A few of you. The second is a book called Human Space Kind by the uh, German writer Rutberg. Bergman, Rutger Bergman, sorry, and uh, his, um, his book is called Humankind. They're very different books. Um, in his book, Sapiens, Harari has a very pessimistic view about humanity. He looks back on human history and says that humanity has been the most destructive force in history, bar none. Humans have created more devastation, more war, more chaos, more, you name it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Bergman, he looks at humankind and he asks us to reimagine what it's like to be human. He, he rewrites some of the scripts, the narratives that we have um, heard of and, and listened to, like Lord of the Flies. He rewrites those narratives to help us have a more hopeful view, a more optimistic view of humanity. Bergman looks back, sorry, Ber- um, Harari looks back and is pessimistic uh, because of the potential for human evil. And Bergman, on the other hand, looks forward with hope because of the potential of humanity for good. Now, if you were to ask both of them, they would both say that humanity is essentially good. Even Harari, with his pessimistic view of the world, would say that people, in and of themselves, their essential being, their core nature is good. The problem is that you place millions of people together in a civilization and the outworking is destruction and negativity and chaos and pandemics and all sorts of things that take place. Well, what are we? Are we good? Are we bad? Is humanity evil? Do we have the capacity for potential and great good? And the answer is yes. Both of those things are true. The Christian worldview um, paints humanity as a complicated creature. That's who we are. We're very complicated. 
Uh, the first thing that is said of us, of you, as a human, is that you are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei, that we have value, value, dignity, purpose, worth, significance, because we are creatures who have been made unlike the rest of the created realm in the image of God, after His likeness, in order to worship Him. And that means that we have great potential for good as people. But you read just the next two pages in Genesis chapter 3, and we read of the fall. That as humans, we have rejected God's good rule. We've been cast out from His presence. And because of our sin and our rejection of God, we are have the capacity for great evil. And, and as you just read through the rest of the pages of the Old Testament, you see story after story after story of human evil at play. Francis Schaeffer says that we are glorious ruins, part glory because we're made in the image of God and part ruin because we have been tainted by our sinful nature, by the flesh, by the world, by the devil. And as we approach this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, as we think about our world, we desperately need a realistic anthropology. That is a realistic understanding of humanity, of who we are as people. That's essential for us. So much of our world is shaped by our view of humanity. In fact, Bergman in his book would say that if we begin to expect, if we view people as essentially good and expect good from them, good will come. And it's very closely tied to a secular humanistic view that we, we don't need any external. We can do this in and of ourselves, create good. He's written a book called Utopia for Realists. Um, so much of our view of humanity is shaped, shapes our um, concept of social justice, our understanding of education, what we do with correctional services. All of those things are shaped by our view of humanity. And so it's important that we understand this. And Ephesians chapter 2 gives us this pessimistic and optimistic view. This is what uh, the great scholar John Stott says about Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It's this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, with constant, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what people are by nature and what we can become by grace. What we need is a refreshing realism of who we are. And Paul gives us just that in this chapter. So firstly, let's get an accurate picture of who we are as people. Well, the first description that Paul uses to describe us there is, is there in verse 1, and it's that we are dead. Have a look at what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, this isn't what you were hoping to hear on a Sunday morning as you came to church. You're dead. You know, my, one of my... Um, Favorite punk bands growing up was a band called Rise Against, and they had this song called Black Masks and Gasolines and Gasoline. And the, the opening line of the song went like this: Simply because you can breathe doesn't mean you're alive or that you really live. And the song really, and I mean all of Rise Against music, really, it's it's just woke music before woke was even cool. 
But um, what it's saying is just because you have oxygen in your lungs and your heart is beating and there are neurons firing through your neurological system doesn't mean that you're really living. And Paul would agree, albeit for very different reasons. He says that we are dead. And the kind of death or life that the Scriptures speak of is a spiritual death here. You know, interestingly, over Easter, I don't know if anyone saw this, the Centre for Public Christianity did some research with McCrindle Research on what people in Australia believe about certain things, about the existence of ghosts, about the existence of spirits, of God, of the soul. Interestingly, 50% of Australians believed in the existence of a soul. And an additional 20% were very open to the concept of a soul. That's 70% of of the Australian population that believes that the soul exists or is at least very open to that. That was surprising for me. I don't know about you. Because the narrative we're often told is that Australia is secular and no one believes in the supernatural. We, we exist in a natural frame and anything outside of that is unbelievable. And yet the reality is that people believe in a soul. People believe in spirits and ghosts. In fact, 37% of 18 to 26-year-olds believed in God, that God exists. But that's a sermon for another day. The reality is that people believe in a soul. And the Christian worldview says that we do, we do exist in more than just our physical, natural, touch, you know, tangible existence. That there is a soul, a spirit that is a part of who we are. It's our very life, the seat of our emotions, our innermost being. It's the core of who we are. And Paul says that that inner reality, in its default state, outside of the intervention of Jesus, is dead, spiritually dead. You might object by saying, well, hang on a second. I don't feel dead. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You're like, I don't feel particularly dead this morning. In fact, I feel very much alive. I have a sense of purpose, and it's not perfect. My life is no, by no means the perfect life, but I, I feel like I'm alive. In the same way that we might be feeling very much healthy, but have undetected cancer running through our bodies, or we may feel particularly emotionally healthy, but lack the perspective and the self-awareness to see that there's actually very unhealthy things about us. And it's not until a close friend points something out to us or a doctor runs a test that we begin to realize that there are things happening beneath the surface of our feelings. We may feel alive. And who better to give us a perspective on ourselves than God himself who says, in fact, outside of Jesus, in your default state, you are spiritually dead dead. It means that we can't fix ourselves. The problems that we face are outside of our ability and capacity to fix because we're dead. Dead people need an external source to awaken them, to revive them, to bring them back to life. We're dead. Well, secondly, we are following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Have a look at verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul says that we are trapped by all three of those things. We live in a system that's called the world. And this is the system that sets itself up in opposition to God. Jesus says to his disciples, the world will not love me. The world will reject me. We live in the world. And you cannot escape the world, right? That, that is the frame that we live in. Our existence is caught up in the culture of the world around us. It's the air that we breathe, the ocean that we swim in, and we are taken along by the current of this world, whether we like it or not. Secondly, we're trapped by what Paul says there as the ruler of the air or the ruler of the age. We are in his sphere, the devil, under his influence. You might think, well, that sounds a bit pessimistic and harsh. I don't feel like I'm particularly a Satanist or under the influence of the devil in any measure. But in the same way as you are under the influence or in the realm of Australian democracy, whether you agree with that democracy or not, that's, that's the realm, the sphere that you live in, that you exist in. And in the same way that we live as Australians under democracy, we live under the sphere, the realm, the influence of the devil, the ruler of the age, of the air. And thirdly, we are trapped by our flesh. So the first two, the world and the devil, are external. And it would be easy to then shun responsibility for our brokenness and our mess. But the third reality here that we are enslaved by our flesh means that we're not off the hook. These are the strong desires of the body and the mind. And we're trapped by these things. We sense that, don't we, at times? that There are just things that we feel like we have no control over. Patterns of behavior, thinking, and it's destructive in our lives. The world, the flesh, and the devil, we're trapped by these things. This is who we are. And thirdly, Paul says there that we are objects of wrath. You didn't think it could get any worse. We are objects of God's wrath. No one really talks about God's wrath anymore. It's not popular. We don't want to think about it today. We just like the picture of God being loving, and that will do us. But wrath here is um, it's a description of God's anger that is not you know, flying off the handle. It's not capricious. It's not that he is vindictive. It's not an emotional outburst of rage that occurs like what might happen to us if someone cuts us off in traffic. Uh, this is a steady disposition of anger at our rejection of our Creator and the mess that we have made of this world. That's what God's wrath is. It's important to note that God's wrath is a secondary character to His holiness. God experienced joy up until Genesis chapter 3. Wrath was never a part of His emotion wheel from Genesis 1 to 2. And it's not until brokenness and fracture and fall comes into existence that God experiences wrath. He is angry at the result of a creation that has turned its back on him and rejected his good rule, rejected his peace, his shalom, rejected his, his vision for what humanity could look like. Now, that's a pretty bleak, pessimistic picture, is it not, of humanity? And it can feel a bit depressing, particularly if we just stop there, end the service, pray, but worship band comes up, we're done. It's like, whoa, really? Well, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. 
But why is this important for us? Other than the fact that this is God's word to us, it's true. Why is this important? Well, it's important because without a proper understanding of humanity in its default nature, without the intervention of God by His Spirit, without that proper understanding, we become very overly optimistic about the potential of humanity and then very disappointed when that potential doesn't realize itself. We experience that's the world we live in. We're longing for this utopia. We're longing for this this world where there's justice and peace and reconciliation and wholeness and equity and it doesn't happen and we're angry about it because we believe that that's what should be. This is also important for us because without a realistic view of humanity, we will be devastated and disappointed when people let us down, hurt us. Secondly, without this, we will never see our need for God. Without understanding who we truly are, we will never see our need for God. You see, I think for the most part, we don't think we need God. Perhaps we might need Him on an occasion, you know, a moment of need. Then we might cry out to God, be it an exam, a health crisis, a parking spot at the shops during Christmas, you know, whatever it is. We, we, we need God, but... Only in small moments of our life. We don't really need God. Our lives, we think, are perfectly fine as they are. We tend to think in 21st century secular Sydney that God is just an enhancement to our lives. That He just takes us from being like 95% good to 100% good or 99% good. He's a spiritual add-on to our already good lives. You know, I remember hearing a story of um, a preacher sharing this conviction he had as he, as he read um, a book, and I, I can't even remember right now the name of the author, but he read a book, and the illustration that the author uses is of the cabin crew of an airline as they hand out the life jackets at the start of the, the flight. Um, and he says... Christianity without sin, if you just remove this picture of humanity from the picture, it's a bit like an air, a cabin crew who gives the passengers of the flight a life jacket and says, wear this, it will make your, your flight better. And after a while, a few hours of wearing it, they begin to feel uncomfortable, it's chafing around their neck. They think to themselves, this isn't making my flight more comfortable, it's making my flight less comfortable, and so they take the life jacket off and put it under their chair. He says that's the equivalent of a Christian message where you take sin out of the picture. You take God's wrath and his anger and his judgment out of the picture. He says the alternative is when the cabin crew gives you a life jacket and says, the airplane is going to crash. If you don't wear this life jacket, you will die and drown. And the person puts the life jacket on and buckles it up and checks the tightness and, and wears it despite the chafing on their neck because they know the significance of the life jacket. You see, without this understanding of humanity, of our default nature outside of the intervention of God, we will never perceive our need for God. We don't just need tweaks or enhancements or life hacks and small improvements. We're dead. And we need to be made alive. 
Now, that's a pretty sobering, humbling picture of who we are. And thankfully, life is exactly, exactly what God gives us. That's what he does now. Have a look at verse 4. There are two words there that just shatter the heaviness of this passage. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, but God has stepped in to intervene in the mess God has acted. God has taken initiative to do something. And he has done that, we see, out of his rich mercy, out of his great love, out of the immeasurable riches of his grace, God has acted. It's not that he looked upon us and thought, they're amazing. We were spiritually dead. We were objects of his wrath. And out of the initiative of his overflowing mercy and love and grace and kindness, God has acted. He has saved us. And there are three things that Paul says God has done to us in these verses that are a staggering contrast to what we have just read. The three words. It says that He has made us alive together with Christ. Secondly, He has raised us up with Him. And then thirdly, he has seated us with him. All of those words there are really important because they're all connected to our union with Jesus. And each of those words in the original language has a little prefix before it, S-Y-N. It's where we get our English word synchronized from. And the reason that those things happen to us is because we are connected. We are united. We participate with Jesus. It's much like um, when you take a photo on your phone and if you have iCloud connected, it just pops up on your iPad and pops up in your stream on your computer because they're synced. Right? So you, what happens on your phone happens on your iPad unless you're too stingy like me to pay the $1.49 per month. My iCloud is full and so just, I just have to do it all manually. But that, that word there, sync, is what happens. We, because we are synced with Jesus, we are united with Jesus. What happens to Jesus happens to us. If you think back to Dawson's message last week at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus himself has died, has been raised again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And here he says, what has happened to Jesus happens to you by virtue of the fact that you are united to him. What happens to Christ happens to us. What happens to Christ happens to us. We are raised up. We are made alive. We are seated together with Him. It's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This, this life that I'm living is not my life. It's the life of Jesus manifest in me. And I live this life by faith. 
in the Son of God. And what this means is that Christianity is not just a religion of ideas. Right? It's not that we just believe that Jesus died and rose and ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand. Right? Our faith does not mean intellectual assent to propositions about Jesus. This is a, an embodied faith, a faith of participation in the life of Jesus. The Christian life is life in God. Life lived through the life that Jesus has given us by faith. Life that is acutely aware of the life that God gives me, aware of His presence, aware of His work, aware of His goodness. Not just intellectual assent. The, the devil believes that Jesus died, rose again, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father. Faith is not just intellectual. Faith is participation in the life of Jesus. We'll have a look at verses 8 and 9 here because this is the core of how God has done what He has done. Verse 8 and 9, which for most people would have been the very center of, of, um, of their preach for this verse. But I think for, for many of us, we, we've, we've learnt this for so long that I wanted us to focus, focus on this idea of union with Christ. But this is what... This is what he says in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the solution to the problem of humanity doesn't come from us. It comes to us. It's given to us by the gracious gift of God. It's not by works. And isn't that a relief that it's not by works, it's not by our effort? What can a dead soul conjure up with its efforts to make ourselves right with God? It's not by our effort. It comes to us, not from us. And in a culture of performance, that is a massive relief. That we, What we could not possibly do for ourselves, God has done on our behalf. And he's given, to, given it to us as a free gift. It's free Given, but not automatic. This needs to be received by faith. By faith in Jesus. And then Paul lifts our gaze from the, the pessimism of our natural default state through what Jesus has done for us to give us this beautiful, unique value, dignity, and purpose in our lives. Have a look at what he says in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the way that the, um, the NLT, the New Living Translation, does this verse. It says, we are God's masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. The original word, the word there in the original language is the word poema, which we think is where we get our English word poem from. And it can mean a song, a uh, um, an artwork, a sculpture, a painting, a picture. We are literally God's masterful creation. And that's not just you as an individual. As true as that is, yes, you are God's masterpiece as an individual. This is us together. This is when Paul says we or you in there, it's yous. It's, it's all of us, right? It's collective you. All of us together. We are God's handiwork, a painting of His grace. 
a display to the watching world of his gracious, creative intent to make and create a new humanity. Jew and Gentile bound together by grace. A beautiful picture. And that means because we are God's handiwork, his, his creation, it means that we have purpose in life. We have purpose walking in good works. This, is, this isn't just a moral, obedient life, right? The type of good works that Paul has in view here is the, the type of participation in God's work in the world, what he is doing to restore all things, what he is doing to achieve justice and what he is doing to achieve equality and what he is doing to bring healing to the brokenness of this world. We are called into participation of the work of God in the world, good works, that before the foundation of this world, he has planned and purposed that we should walk in them. That's a beautiful picture of what humanity can be, animated by the Holy Spirit, brought alive by the work of Jesus, that we are God's artwork on display for all to see. God saves us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He saves us by His grace, and He saves us for good works. You know, I'm not much of an art connoisseur. Um, the times that I've been to art galleries, I tend to look at the artworks and think, oh, I don't really understand what's happening here. The, the white blank canvas, I'm like, what is this? You know? And then someone explains it to me, I'm like, oh, that's actually really cool. But I do really like street art. And one of my favorite street artists is an artist called Banksy. I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of Banksy. He's a very provocative street artist. Um, has done an, a number of incredible works that provoke thinking. And that's what the best art does. The best art makes us think, provokes us to think something, or even better, to do something or to be someone. It's a very famous work that Banksy did in 2012, just in the lead up to the London Olympic Games, I think it was, and he's, he's um, stenciled a child at a sewing machine. The artwork's called Slave Labor. A child at a sewing machine, and he's sewing Union Jack flags. And at the height of um, the UK's celebration of the Olympics, Banksy has this provocative piece that stops people in their tracks and makes them think. And he wanted them to think about the fact that the UK had commissioned all of the merch for the Olympic Games to be done in sweatshops. And he alerted the world to an injustice and forced people to think and act and behave. And that's what good art does to us. It's provocative. And what Paul is saying here is that you, the church, are God's beautiful masterpiece to a watching world of grace that ought to provoke the world into thinking, surely God exists. He is at work in this people. There is such profound love, such profound beauty, such profound unity. There is a posture of leaning in sacrificially to a watching world that is in desperate need. We are God's display of grace to a world that so desperately needs us. And that ought to give us hope. And that brings hope 
to a world that so desperately needs it beyond this kind of chipper optimism that humanity has potential for utopia, but we just simply don't have the handles to get there in and of ourselves. But a people saved by Jesus and animated by the work of the Spirit absolutely do. And church, this morning, that, that is our commission. That is who God, who, who God calls us to be in Christ, His redeemed people. So I'm going to pray for us as we worship Jesus for what He has done. Please join me. Let me pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have stepped in to pluck us out of the mess and the brokenness of our lives. We rejoice in the fact that by Your gracious, loving, merciful initiative, You have done for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. We thank You for that. We worship you for that. Because you've not just saved us from our mess, you've saved us for a purpose. To be your beautiful painting to a watching world of what grace looks like. And God, we desperately want to be that. So please, by the power of your spirit, help us to be exactly that. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen.